whoop whoop fam welcome back to side quests i believe this is episode 13 and it is our second foray into final fantasy 7 and again i'm joined by my wonderful co-host mr vincent reese and mr wesley shans hey guys what's up hello hey whoop, whoop, fam Hey. All right. Hey, so whether we're uh, Ron Weasley and his broken wand or we're Avalanche and a ragtag group, we're getting it together. And we're working through the technology in order to make something good happen here. And so, guys, just to start off, I suppose I might just give a recap of what we played through. So in the very first episode, we talked about um, Cloud and our very first introductory uh, image and uh, the first uh, meeting of all the gang that we do meet, Barrett, Tifa, Cloud, Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse, I believe. And um, we got through our first boss battle. Then for this time, we worked all the way to the second boss battle. We met President Shinra. We met Ares and a, a Turk named Reno. And we got exposed to a couple new light motifs, particularly Ares's song, which, you know, practically brought me to tears hearing it again, her light motif. And also the Shinra one that the President Shinra has. And, of course, we also heard that big name again, Sephiroth. Can't be expecting me to remember every soldier's names, not unless you're like Sephiroth. But brilliant he was, perhaps too brilliant. But I, we thought since uh, Vince uh, sort of beneath the surface in the background has been doing quite a bit of research on this, um, he, he wanted to make a couple corrections for us at the beginning of this episode. So Vince, I think the first thing you wanted to correct us on is that what we thought was snow and then we thought was, uh, stars or what we thought were stars and then snow in the very first intro scene was actually Mako coming out of a small fissure in a, a pipe that Ari was looking at. Is that correct? True story. Okay, good. And then something else that you wanted to talk about just for a moment was you wanted to provide a little bit of historical context for the idea that um, Midgard itself as a circle with a giant, as you say, phallic um, uh, uh, top. And soon we'll have a giant phallic gun called, I think, what, it's not Big Bertha, but uh, it's called something big, right? Um, well, yeah, so that's not going to help. And um, so you... Uh, <clears throat> What? Yeah, it's called Sister Ray or something like that, right? Um, sure. Uh, again, not helping. And so let's uh, let's. Uh, you wanted to give us some historical context context for the Mandala. So, well, why don't you read that for us now? Yeah. So, uh, really quick, uh, being the chief pedant on this podcast, uh, there was <laughs> an additional uh, continuity mm, flip up that I'd like to address the uh, just because, you know, nerds are going to be listening to this. They're going to push their glasses up their nose and say, mm, actually. Yeah. Uh, as long as you listen to it at least once, we'll yeah, get that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you, you did mention the Mako Fisher, uh, but also I believe we said last time that the bombing occurred during the day. Now uh, it's, right after we get off of the train or maybe it's on the train um after hmm. the first reactor the time is sometime around like 1:26 a.m. so the bombing occurred at night which i think would make sense because the visual we get from the uh intro shot is midgard surrounded by darkness 
Mm-hmm. Um, but getting getting that pedantry out of the way, uh, what I was interested in, this is a pretty um, this is a pretty common theme in a lot of anime, a lot of Japanese cultural mm-hmm. output after World War II is the sort of uh, glancing to the bombs that were dropped by the U.S. in at the end of the Pacific front of World War II. We see this with uh, 10 years after the bombs dropped, around 10 or 11 years, uh, with the first Gojira, which opens up on an actual nuclear bomb testing. um, Sorry, not nuclear bomb testing, but Godzilla rising up out of the sea and killing a boat of fishermen, which was a uh, throwback to an actual nuclear bombing test in the Pacific um, Ocean that killed Japanese fishers. Uh, So the bomb is kind of always present in these cultural outputs, but very rarely is it ever really stated outright that, hey, bomb, 1945, we got hit. Um, So we are seeing this again, this uh, reference to nuclear energy uh, in the Mm -hmm. sense of a profound source of energy uh, coming from the earth. It even has this sort of green light to it, which we associate to sort of the uh, cast of light that uranium gives off. We see it in the intro to The Simpsons. Um, We see it in the Hulk, all of those. So uh, with there, there's a lot more to be said. Um, just to throw this out, we see uh, this sort of apocalyptic sense of always being under threat of destruction. Um, this apocalyptic end times uh, in Neon Genesis Evangelion, as well as Akira, uh, two of the like most prominent um, animes to have come out in the early mid nineties, uh, definitely shaped a lot of, uh, my anime tastes. Um, second point, and I've been talking for a while, so I'll keep this quick is I'm just, um, I was caught by Tiffa's comment on the train. Um, I believe before they get, um, shit, is it before? Yeah, it's before, um, the Shinra, uh, security checks on the train. She says that all the towns of Midgard used to have names, although no one remembers them now. So doing a little bit of uh, history in this Final Fantasy VII world, um, the creation of Midgard isn't that old. Um, The coming across of Mako as an energy source isn't that old. The impression I got was that it's two to three generations back. Um, President Shinra has overseen most of the Mako technology developments, um, which means that, I don't know, he, he looks not young, but I'd say, you know, 60s, golden age, 69, I'd say. Um, we, we know that Midgard can't be that old. So the fact that in two to three generations, the names of the town that Midgard sits above Um, have been lost. That is an incredible rupture 
in the continuity of these people's memories, uh, which is reflected also in the late 1700s and early 1800s advent of the sort of enclosures that the nobles did that pushed people, the British, sorry, get specific, the British um, and Scottish pushed people into the cities where you have this um, dislocation from the land and history suffered from the suffered by the uh, former tenants of these lands. Um, so I kind of want to shut up now. So if you guys want to take any of that and run, yeah, well, by all means. yeah, well, the first thing is I, I think I understand what a Professor Ben's lecture was probably like now, but I was sort of hoping you would just read what you wrote because I thought that was a lot clearer and faster. So what you said is I'm unclear on the time frame of Midgard's and remember it's Midgard, not Midgard, though that may be a translation issue. Um, and that sort of thing comes through in this text. And that's something that would be interesting to talk about. Like I saw that my interest might get poked rather than peaked from one of the characters <laughs> today, but you were saying that uh, sort of the idea is that the construction is contemporaneous with the discovery of Mako, and then Midgard could be only two to three generations old as President Shinra oversaw the construction of much of the world's reactors, it seems, or, or many of the world's reactors, which is roughly the same time period as from the end of the Tokugawa shogunate to the domination of Eastern Asia by the Meiji period, 1868 to 1912, I think you say. I mean, the parallels with Japanese history are there and the prominent would be the apocalyptic tone of the game, which is a reflection of the two bombs that the U.S. dropped on Japan and the resulting sense of looming destruction in Japanese culture, which is reflected in Midgar, especially from technology, Gojira, all the kaiju, but for our generation, most notably Neon Genesis Evangelion, which, as you said, is an, uh, an anime as well as Akira. And for those who know about those sorts of things, they are big, they're big issues um so where are we exactly um uh wes i i feel a little disoriented by that initial onslaught hey, uh i like the point the point i liked most vince was about the town's names being forgotten uh mm -hmm. in, within the space of a generation or two mm -hmm. and i thought that that was reflected really powerfully in cloud's apparent lack of memory of even like very significant uh intimate memories with tifa mm -hmm. right like, at first, he doesn't remember the promise that she's talking about. And then we we get the flashback scene where they're um, in their hometown and they're talking about going to the city. Uh, and he promises to rescue her if she's ever in, in need. Uh, it's sort of like this memory. We see that, too, uh, in this episode of the game, this chapter or whatever. He's um, been exposed to Mako. His eyes shine with that yes. light that you alluded to. And it's in a sense, it's like that. That's connected with the loss of memory. We see a guy who's sick in the tube. Um, if you guys got to that bit in the next uh, sector um, slum, mm -hmm. there's a guy who like is just uh, wheezing and, and can't even like make sounds, um, make word, make speech anymore. He had a tattoo uh, of number two mm -hmm. on him, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so something yeah. to keep in mind. Yeah, so so there's this, this connection between the unleashing of this energy source like Mako um, call it whatever you will, uh, and the loss of memory, whether it's individual memory or, or social oh, memory, mm -hmm. right? This like this break, this uh, disjunction that you, you, you describe. So um, I think that that's yeah. pretty powerful and like pretty insistent here. So yeah. 
So as you progress from, say, the individual that you once were into, say, your new advanced role as soldier, you become in some respect de-individuated or, or, or sort of assimilated to something larger to yourself or larger than what you once were in the same way that these villages, which were once standalone villages, are being assimilated to this much uh, larger cultural entity or social well, entity. I'd, I'd say yeah. it's not so much an assimilation uh, because an assimilation would mean that there would still be some sort of continuation of what is being brought in, although it's being coordinated with this larger new center around which it is organized. This is Which more... is exactly what happens, I think, in this situation. I, I don't think that maintaining identity, which is what you mean there, mm -hmm. is actually part of assimilation. Okay. I think, yeah. So I'm not suggesting that they get to remain the same as they were, because obviously that's untrue given the fact that their names disappear. Mm -hmm. But they do become part of a larger whole. And I think what's precisely at issue here is whether something that becomes part of a larger whole can appropriately maintain memory of what it once was, or whether it's sort of a natural fact of becoming or being swept into or mixed together or assimilated into something larger, whether in taking on a new role that sort of uh, destroys one's initial identity in the, in, to make room for the creation of another. So, and, go ahead. Yeah. So that, that's my point. Yeah. The, the one thing then just to sort of keep in mind, because I think this will help build into a larger argument as we continue into this, as we continue to examine Midgar and this new sort of world, this new center that's being created is that mm. the, um, the names are lost but they get new yes. names. And what mm. are those names? They are numbers. simply numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, just like just, that man who yeah. has the number two on his arm. So like I'm just going to drop that and ah. we can circle back later. Well, and so that's sort of interesting because I, that draws to me just an immediate tension between one's personal and one's social relations. Because what seems to be lost, at least with Cloud, and supposedly having become soldier is sort of his memory of his relationship to Tifa, which will manifest in a very interesting way because sort of something I'm keeping in mind is why is it that Tifa is not bringing up the fact that their city burned down? Um, and um, like he just had this flashback before this second big boss battle where, well, and I really wanted to ask you all about that. What is that white text who's talking to him? And then he gets yeah. that second flash where it's like, I know you. And I was like, dang, what is that? Talking uh -huh. to him. And then he also sees, uh, uh, has a memory of Tifa with a hat on, I guess meaning uh -huh. she's younger, next to what we know as the Masamune, Sephiroth sword, and her dead father, and her uh -huh. running in a Mako reactor. And we're like, what is happening here? <laughs> e exactly. Mm -hmm. um what, what what is happening there guys <laughs> so i think that for now the important thing is that we're getting this in these like fragmentary um mm. flashes that they do have some kind of connection with each other uh keyed by the color red by the text that comes in and mm. um your interaction with that the fact that cloud himself is on this this knife's edge between his uh, world-weary knowledge of everything going on and shrug, apparent, shrug, apparent lack of any like shrug. skills. Right? He's he's just as weak as all the other party members. It turns out. So, <laughs> it's like, you know, 
it's this very interesting um, storytelling uh, thing where you get these flashbacks and you get these kind of mysteries that are slowly um, uh, brought forward and the interplay between the characters too. Yeah, they're not saying everything to one another um, partly because they're not often alone, right? There's always mm. another person around, um, other members of Avalanche to, uh, to navigate that. Um, and we see this pretty strongly too once Eris starts to get interested in Cloud's past. Um, she asks about Tifa and whether their, uh, their relationship is friends or something else. Um, and that's kind of like what the player gets to decide primarily is how to re respond to that stuff. And um, so for now, like what exactly happened back in their hometown, we don't know, but it sounds really interesting. And partly why it's interesting is that you are sort of choosing how to interpret these little fragments that come in uh, and what they I think mean. that's I think that's profound and something I want to I want to lay I, I want to lay at y'all's feet and see what y'all think about this is that what I think is the the driving relationship in the game is the relationship between Tifa and cloud and something I saw in this segment of the game that we we're playing is that things constantly get in their way during the gameplay <laughs> particularly the first thing is that when they jump off the pl the train, Barrett then jumps off with them. So Barrett's there, mm -hmm. keeping them from being alone. Second thing is when you fight the boss, the boss is between you, mm -hmm. uh, between Tifa and Cloud. And then Cloud actually experiences a literal fall. And I, I mean, yeah. I just think it's so highly symbolic. Not only does he fall, he falls through the roof of a church in the slums <laughs> onto a grassy area that is not supposed to exist that is being maintained by a person who is not supposed to exist who we hear is sort of and cloud sort of shows his 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 sort of young man character here by projecting onto her why what do they have what do they want with you do they want you to be soldier soldier <laughs> it must be soldier if they're interested <laughs> in you and and oh you can't keep up with me you want to be in soldier and uh, <laughs> And so that's sort of interesting just to connect that with what you were saying, Wes, because Cloud is just as weak as everybody, even though he has this giant sword, which is sort of incredible. Um, but 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 um, so just what it seems like what's happening with him meeting Ares, and again, she asked for a bodyguard, and what does she offer him as pay? A date. Mm. Is it's, it's as if part of this, this story is sort of an allegory for the things or, or the sort of the things that get in the way of a real relationship in the life of a young man, like mm -hmm. his aspirations towards career mm -hmm. and his failures in that, in that endeavor as potentially represented by his interaction with President Shinra and the fact that Shinra sees something in his eyes. And then he meets this sort of ideal girl who's not even a girl, but a creature uh, from another time. She's sort of an mm -hmm. anima figure in the Jungian psychology, sort of a, sort of a perfect female figure, right? Um, and um, she's going to sort of get in the way of the relationship with Tifa as well. So just talking about the fragmentation of Cloud's memory and how that might affect his present perception and his, his, his actions that move towards the future, it seems as if he also has to clear up what exactly he wants in the present and by understanding who he actually is by having to actually delve into his past, which he seems completely unwilling to do in order to see the failures and the actual facts from it so that he can understand who he is. 
rather than identifying simply with soldier. Um, it's almost as if what we're getting is how he starts off as, as, as a type, a de-individuated type. Mm -hmm. And in order to become a real person, to not be a Pinocchio, to be a real individual who can make his own choices, he's going to have to go through the suffering of seeing his failures in his past and the terrible things that have happened, which he's totally unwilling to look at or even talk about now, to make a long point long. Uh, no, I like, could we go to the, the church scene? Yes. Uh, which you brought up. Um, I found that very interesting. And I found the dialogue there practically incoherent yes uh, myself like the 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 double entendres and the like the stuff that's not said between them but then what is said between them yeah is like is is kind of flirtatious it's kind of playful um it's unclear whether eris is uh teasing you or if she's like scared and that's her way of um playing off that you know that she's making fun of you instead Right. You've also just fallen like thousands of feet <laughs> <laughs> and apparently are unharmed. Right. Like you just, you just pop back. So, so there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Also, just to throw out, um, I, I like the image of Barrett and Tifa um, leaving cloud to fall. Right. Mm. That uh, Barrett is like, we get this like cinema cinematic cutscene where he pulls Tifa away as the, the, the reactors exploding and he has seen this before, right? We'll see this later when we get to Barrett's story. Mm -hmm. His friend, right? They were they were in a similar, like, you know, hanging from a cliff situation. So mm. I just think that image is very, very cool. Um, and then you fall, you know, and you're you're fine. So so uh, to to add on to this church scene is Cloud. Cloud seems to be projecting, you know, that young man, everything soldier. But we also find out in the. Uh, in this um what the hell playground that they visit that uh eris also had a previous boyfriend also Snap. from soldier uh which we don't know yet but yes it's it's our boy zach and if you've ever seen the image of zach um i mean cloud copies everything that he did essentially whether it's unconscious or conscious doesn't really matter he gives the presentation of blonde boy zach um so there's mm. this sort of two-way uh projection perhaps going on and even in the conversation with mm. the mother there's also the statement that uh what is it like? Uh, she doesn't need her heart broken again, or something, right. something along those lines. Just get the heck out of here, essentially. That's that's very interesting because so I wrote down a couple of the quotes that Aries has, and what I think part of that dialogue is is that the things she says are so general to him that anybody can identify with Cloud in that moment. It's like the archetypal first interaction between a woman and a man as young people. Like she asks questions like are you okay? And she says, so we meet again. Mm -hmm. And she says, do you want to talk? And, um, and, and, and so all of these, all these, you know, these are all like sort of small invitations and uh, questions of care, personal, personal on the one hand, but also general who, who could you not ask the question? Are you okay to who wouldn't be able to give you some sort of genuine response in the negative or the positive. And so just the fact that Cloud is sort of a carbon copy 
of Zach makes me wonder if part of what's being said here, if, if, if we consider, so let's take this as a hypothesis that Final Fantasy VII, part of it is a story of Bildungsroman or of differentiation. How one first as a boy must, must identify with the society, with the group in order to become something, but then one must become an individual again after that. Um, that it's sort of a two-stage process. And so when Cloud meets Ares for the first time, he can be treated in the exact same way that, say, maybe Zach was treated by her, because at first when she meets him, what is he to her? Well, just like you said, Vince, that mutual projection is happening. Since she knows nothing about him, she just has a generalized image of man. And in fact, her image, which must have been molded by Zach to some degree, is of soldier. And so what does she recognize right in front of her? Well, essentially the man who is exactly like the man she was just with. And then, so how does she act towards him? Well, she acts exactly towards him as she would act towards Zach, right? She cares for him. She walks with him. She talks with him and she takes him back home. And she also kicks so, some ass. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Go on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, she's just um, really cool, you know, uh, first crush and all that. Uh, but we see her sneak out of the house, total bad girl move, totally hot. Um, and she cuts Cloud off uh, as they enter into what? Section six of the slums. And she engages in the same battles uh, that Cloud does and fights alongside. So um, uh, she's also beginning to in interject herself into this avalanche world into this world of conflict between mm. Shinra right now and avalanche although she has not yet formally joined the group yeah um, well, one thing too i just want to say that her footwear is really practical uh, it's great for combat, great for fighting. It's not high heels. They look like steel-toed boots, leather, just uh, fantastic uh, character design. <laughs> well, so something I wanted to ask you about, Wes, uh, particularly because you've been playing through Earthbound, and I wanted to sort of also ask you, but in a different way, about this, Vince. Because So, Vince, you've been having trouble getting the game because of eBay Ugh. and people canceling on you. So you've had to be watching watch throughs. Yeah. And so at first I, I was, I was sort of interested just from a technical aspect, how watching a walkthrough rather than actually playing the game would affect you. But, but I was playing the game today and I was actually becoming frustrated for two reasons. A, the random battles. Mm -hmm. They were very much inhibiting to my exploratory behavior precisely because I was in a rush. And then B, Save points. Are they, the best. I recall when I was young that I would always have to play for like 30 minutes more than I wanted to because I'd have to find a save point because I'd be stuck between them. And that happened today. I was late to ultimate Frisbee because I had to find a save point, which I then did not find. So I had to leave the system on like I did when oh. I was a kid and turn off the TV so I wouldn't have to retrace my steps. Yeah, that's and an so, absolute power move. <laughs> and so so Wes I wanted to I wanted to see whether you were having sort of the same experience with the game at all sort of the the fun but frustration of running into these these random battles um which 
in Final Fantasy VII, you're actually lucky. You can set the speed of text and battle to faster, which I finally done so I can get through some of these things faster because now I'm a teacher and not just a student with nothing to do. And, um, and also just how that might affect your experience, Vince, because it's like, mm-hmm. I like the game, but I'm also dealing with the frustrations of the game too mm-hmm. um, at, at the moment. And I, I, that's something, so when we started this project, of course, I was very nostalgic and I was looking forward to all the good and bad emotions that were with it. But I forgot about the nitty gritty emotions of actually, of actually playing through it and having to deal with the mechanics of the game. Um, yeah. Well, the, the boss fight, like you described, uh, is really well designed, right? Like it's very interesting how you, you're attacking it from either side and the effects of attacking it when its back is turned are different and all that stuff. But like the random battles, yeah, become kind of tedious. Uh, there's sort of a comical thing going on where you're, rescuing Eris um, by pushing barrels down and the barrels that you think are going to fall on the enemy miss completely and she like sort of scoffs and just like you know, fights them and it's fine. So there's like a there's kind of a funny swashbuckling thing going on there. Um, you know uh, the way that the annoyance or the frustration enters in and the fact that it like takes time to proceed like you're describing I think makes playing the game really different from from watching it mm-hmm. or from uh, reading a book, for example, where you can sort of like skim and flip pages and put it down whenever and pick it up whenever. Um, but they are, I think there's a bit of a, uh, a movement now where you can sort of put the system to sleep and wake it up at any time, you know, like a computer uh, emulator, mm. you can just save state and you can save it anywhere and pick it up at any time. So that's, I think, an, uh, an artifact of the... Um, the design and the technology at the time, which is maybe less of a thing now. Um, I, I don't know for sure though. Yeah, and well, certainly we do have different methods available to us to, to like emulation and play through so that we don't have to endure that. But I just thought that was a very interesting element that I forgot that was a part of playing the game that has become very much present. It's not detracting from it at all, but it's just funny to, it's sort of like, you know, it just reminds me of like when you think of being in an old relationship or an old place and you focus on the positive aspects, but few of the day-to-day annoyances and frustrations. And so Vince, what is it like for you right now watching the walkthroughs? What sort of emotions are you feeling when, when you go through there? Do you get frustrated with the people walking through? Um, uh, do you, do you connect with the game in the same way? What, what's it feel like? I mean, my guy's a stud, so he knows exactly how to go through the game without, you know, fucking around. He, um, the, the one thing I'd say is that there's not a lot of exploration. And I think this is, Hmm. uh, one of the essential characteristics of the scholar, you know, Nietzsche makes fun of scholars Hmm. for all sorts of reasons. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but how I'm going to make fun of scholars is the fact that they think they receive all of the information um, that they need when, in fact, uh, they don't. And I'm seeing that mm. when I want Cloud to go uh, to the top of the screen into that section instead of just barreling through to get into Sector 6. Uh, I cannot control what I see, everything that... I'm getting that I'm reflecting on that I'm thinking about is cordoned off by the choices of the actual person doing the work. So that at least I think is really interesting. Um, 
I remember in my readings of Hegel's uh, philosophy of history, um, he he has like five sentences on Buddhism, and they're completely off the mark. Uh, but <laughs> but he, he says it with such authority because Hegel seems to believe that he's gotten all the information he needs to know about this weird thing going on in India, China, and Japan, and can then speak um, expertly on it when, after hundreds of years of translations, we look back and we just say, oh yeah, Hegel was fat. Uh, of course, he, he, <laughs> he didn't get it. Um, uh, so that, that's my frustration. Okay, and so... So I guess hmm, one question I have is that I wonder, so one thing we've talked about in our Harry Potter podcast is how much do we add to the text? So something we noticed in the first book is that there's not a lot written in the first Harry Potter book. You maybe get a sentence of description, maybe a narrative opinion of the situation craftily put in there, and maybe some interesting magical thing happens that has a correlate in the real world, and then boom, onto the next situation. And it sort of made us wonder, how is it that a world gets created out of this off of these just few, these few words? And it makes me wonder whether this sort of game, a video game, part of what makes it so powerful, sort of like in any relationship, is not simply the narrative that's being displayed in front of you, but the time you spend interacting with it as well. Because part of, part of what happens when I play is that I'll... I take more time than if I were just trying to beat it. I take time to write down notes. I'll dawdle on certain things. I'll go talk to people a second time. I make mistakes and then have to get into, uh, I have to get into random battles. And then I have to try and look for the positive in that and be like, well, I did make some more gill and get a little stronger. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're going to be trying to max out. You're just not doing a speed run. You're going to, get that AP, you're going to get those limit breaks uh, that take extra time. Right. And the, so, uh, yeah. What about the train scene? Mm -hmm. um, there, that's one, that's one other place where the player has to make some choices and it, mm -hmm. uh, like you actually get to see different things in the game, depending on what things you do there. Um, mm -hmm. So you can like either run through the train, like you're being told to do, or you can stop and like talk to the people in the different yes. mm -hmm. and maybe you won't be able to make it through to the front of the train. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's like, I think a, an interesting. Although there's the stakes are pretty low in this case, it's like an example or a taste of that. Um, the way that your exploration has an actual effect on like what you get to do in the game. Mm -hmm. And you know that's so interesting because that did lead to some self insight on my part and also insight about my relationship to us. Because in the very first compartment, I realized I ran right through it because of that 15 second marker. And I realized, well, that's very foolish because as a good game player, I would realize that I, all these characters are within this train so that I can talk to them and potentially so that I can talk to all of them and still get through. And I realized yeah. that my perspective was still sort of my childish perspective of there's the goal, just run at it. But, but there's more to the situation than just getting to the end of the train. Like, like we've often talked about with the Nabokov quote, if there's a shotgun, on the mantle in the first act, it needs to be used in the third. If there whoa, whoa, are NPCs, whoa, 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 my dude, that's, <laughs> I mean, like, that—that's Chekhov's gun. That's Chekhov. Yeah. Chekhov. Excuse me. Yeah. So, in any case, it's so, okay. I'm a ten-inch player. I got your back. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. Showing that scholasticism there to find the, deep, the, the to find the dust and think it gold. And so to make the point, um, you have the opportunity to make those choices, and and or rather, I had the opportunity to make that choice, and I realized my own value hierarchy in that moment, and also my my sort of thinking of you and thinking of you interacting with the NPCs in Earthbound and understanding your, your sort of uh, your scholastic attempt to understand the game in a deeper way made me want to stop and play the game differently from how I originally did so that I would get more out of it, so that I would, I would have the benefit of your perspective adding to my perspective of this yeah. game as well. And th that would have been totally absent if I'd just seen it being played through. So there's, there's um, another um, aspect of this, of the player in the game, what sort of story is constructed by the player. Hmm. Um, and I think the train section is a perfect place to, to go. Like you said, you have the NPCs, but, and you can interact or you cannot interact. But what about the things that are presented to the player that are mm. simply ignored? Um, when when I wanted to get through something, you know, I would just smash that square button as a twelve year old. Right. I didn't want to. I didn't want to look at this. Yes. So um, it's it's sort of just zoning out in conversation. You smash that so you can get to the next uh, car. But the one thing I noticed right when we get onto the train is that we see our first sort of um, Shinra employee. Mm. We see the Shinra manager whom we've seen before um, in the first, uh, first train ride going to work. Huh. And so we, we think that, oh yeah, uh, Mr. Shinra, he's going to be the dude that we need to focus on when, and he's the first sort of instance of Shinra when in fact we have this worker and how does he interact with the players there? Um, and I would, I'd say that we are already seeing some sort of uh, class dynamics going on. Uh, he, he's totally afraid of this huge black dude coming onto the train um, and Barrett takes advantage of that, which I think is hilarious. He actively intimidates him by standing in front and then uh, slapping the window as he gives a little white guy yelp. Um, but there's this two-tiered aspect of Midgar that we should, I think, uh, keep in mind. We have the slums and we have the upper world. And now we have these two coming into contact on this train Uh we have, but well, we also we also just have differing perspectives on the situation coming into contact too, right? Mm -hmm. Because from the Shinra employees' perspective, which I think is a legitimate perspective, this hooligan is attempting to intimidate him, who does happen to be part of what he would consider a terrorist organization that mm -hmm. potentially could kill him, and so he he's being rather brave by staying in his spot, even though being intimidated by, by Barrett, because he's, he's not the one making the choices for Shinra. He, uh, he's, he's simply an employee. So yeah, he's he, sort of he, in, he's a functionary, right? Mm -hmm. So he's sort of in this middle ground for us, but that just makes me think that it's so interesting because like you were saying, I often feel myself, and I know that this is true of Steph Bell too, wanting to rush through the dialogue, even though, because 
the dialogue seems less important than the action of the plot moving forward. So good job, Aristotle there. Um, but um, but what what seems interesting is that the sort of the the naive perspective is let's just get to the next thing. Yeah. Let's just get to the next thing. Goal one to goal two. But the more nuanced perspective that I think I'm picking up on from Wes as I go through here the second time is that, well, what is your goal in playing this game? Is it just to get to the next thing? And is that also your goal in life? Or, or is it to explore, which is something you can actually do in an RPG unlike any other game, uh, except for you know now Grand Theft Auto and we do have some different sorts of games. But you can, you can sort of explore everything that's there. You can talk to every person. You can try and find every item. And so you can, you can just have a richer experience of what the game is. And, and so it, it's almost like in that way, the game, how you play the game reflects how, how you look at life itself. Um, yeah. I think uh, it's also interesting to look at the way that um, it's Jesse's attempt to do something special with Cloud. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, sets off the train uh, uh, thingy. Um, like it, it messes everything up. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting example too of like, so there's this other character there who's relatively minor, and yet there's um there's like more to that story, um, mm-hmm. and you can read into it what you will. Um, there's also on the we- train uh, Johnny, right? This kid who's from uh, Sector Seven, who you, you meet his parents, and they're worried about him, and he gets mugged on the train, and you can try to recover his his gill for him. And you'll meet him again in uh, Don Corneo's uh, uh, the Honeybee Lounge or whatever. Uh, he's waiting outside of there. So like he comes up again and again. So there's these little these little hints of of further stories. Yeah. Yeah, and and yeah. So Vince, what were you about to say? I heard you. Oh no, up. I I just wanted to make sure that we all we, we're all pretty confident that Jesse has the hots for Cloud, right? They do seem to have sort of a budding relationship. Yeah, yeah, she does seem to be trying to draw something out of him. Yeah, um, so that's um, I, I just uh, want to keep in mind sort of the relationships that our main mm-hmm. character, for all ostensible purposes, we, the player, um, are getting involved with. Uh, so far we have Tiffa, Jesse. And then we are going to get um, we're going to get Eris right after this Mako reactor. So there's something about this blank slate of cloud that seems to be possibly attractive. This this individual who has nothing mm. really internally that I I'm going to present this uh, seems to be a blank slate on which people can project things um so let me really, let me add to that is that potentially also what he represent or what he provides for us as the player as well oh yeah 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 i, I was totally cloud as a kid in my in my yeah. head it was just like i'm i'm cloud i'm so cloud <laughs> and so okay so if he is sort of um a blank slate or bland in the way that you can you can project yourself like onto Mayo. him. What what does it mean about us that there are people like Zach and Sephiroth in his background, people who have been extraordinary and successful that he has to sort of Whoa. compete with that are sort of butting up because Sephiroth has come up multiple times. He was his <laughs> hero 
And then President Shinra, the only soldier he remembers is Sephiroth. And, uh, and then also we get these hints that Ares was once with another soldier. And from what we know in the future, that soldier happens to be Zack, whom Cloud is completely attempting to identify with and copy down to his outfit and sword. Um, indicating that he even uses his mind in the same way if you take the sword as the symbol for the logos, which of course it is. No, um, and so Cloud is totally undifferentiated from the figures who he's attempting to identify with in the beginning, specifically Zack. I wonder if part of what a successful RPG role-playing game, which means you explicitly project yourself into the character you play through, sort of like a divine uh, daimon who can see from a third-person perspective but still experiences the emotions of the person in front of them, uh, like we're the daimon for Socrates, but Socrates is here cloud, is that perhaps you start to experience differentiation as a video game player between you and the character or potentially between you and the other people playing as well. Mm. What did y'all think about that? Mm. Yeah, it seems like as you play the game, you might have an initial like approach where you're just like getting to the next thing. And that's like a thing that the game is basically for, right? Like to play and have fun and, and explore. And then as you start to think about it or talk about it with other people, or like if you replay it, you might do things differently or you read about it, you, you want to know what you missed or what you want to get next time. So then it seems like that that becomes a, um, a kind of port, uh, a canvas upon which mm. you get to like a, a version of yourself, right? And like as a kid, like that's pretty strong, like to the point where you really do kind of identify with that character and take things from the game and try to like see how they work in real life. And that seems to be like a really interesting and probably a healthy thing to do um, because like by playing things out, you get to sort of experiment with them in a way that's like relatively safe um, mm. and like something that you actually care about. So it seems good all around. Um, once, you, once you do have like some, some more um, sophisticated or abstract thoughts about it, like then it becomes really interesting to think about like how to design the game such that certain experiences mm -hmm. become possible. Right. And like such that mm. you can like design certain kinds of conversations and, and insights for the characters and the players to, um, to experience. And well, yeah, then that, kind of yeah. Let me ask you one more question about that then. Speaking of designing specific situations in order to create real emotions in the real world for the mm -hmm. person playing, is mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about the moral interactions you have because. Several times we have an opportunity to either say something sort of mean or derogatory yeah, or good, aloof yeah. Yeah. Or, to, or to be nice. Yeah. And so I got to tell you, every single time I try and be nice, hmm. every single time I feel bad if I'm not, when I see that dialogue and even when I see this represented character in front of me sort of look at the character who is a representation of me in that moment, I'm like, I didn't play the role right. And so it makes me wonder whether there's sort of an aspect to ethics that we don't often keep in mind, which is role playing. That uh, part of doing the right thing is to play your role correctly and consistently in relation to the narrative you find yourself. And, um, and, you know, I can even provide evidence for this. If you're, say, like a teacher like I am, and say you act out of character 
you will be reprimanded for that sort of thing, which of course I have done um, <laughs> because no profession can encompass the entirety of my personality, um, which everybody who's met me now knows <laughs> as, I, as I stare at a funny mask from a masquerade ball near me. The mask is not the person here. But, but so uh, I'm wondering, Wes, how, how are you treating those moments of choice in, yeah. in this game right now? And, and if you're treating them in a certain way, why are you treating them in that way? Um, yeah, I, I, do, I do the same thing where I try to think about, okay, so like in this situation, the right thing to do is, you know, say something supportive or, or try to be the, um, the supporting character here, right? Like help that person out. Don't steal the kid's money from his secret uh, drawer between two drawers. Oh, dude, uh, I did that every time. <laughs> Homie's got to eat, okay? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and that's, again, like you, you can do it that way too, because it's, that's sort of like the transgression that you're invited to get to do there, right? Like there's this, there's this frisson of, of getting to be um, whichever role you want to play, right? Like it's the blank slate thing again. Uh, And, and I don't think that there is necessarily an ethical, um, uh requirement there right like either one could be more interesting and it's like the choice that makes it kind of exciting i'd I'd like to add on to that um in the sense of this ethical aspect of the game in real life when we have these ethical choices before us um we are aware that what we do if we can either say you were the slum drunk or uh, you were right. the flower girl, we yes. know that that can affect something later on in the game, uh, later on mm-hmm. in life. Yes. But in the game, we know that won't have any effect on the greater storyline. Eris is still going to join the party. She is still going to... Uh, go through everything that Eris does, nothing changes from this dialogue. So what are we experiencing when we hit either of these answers, knowing that it does not change anything? Because that's great. I, I have the same thing. I'm like, oh shit, I, I don't wanna I don't wanna hurt Eris's feelings, even though I know she's like in the back of my head a bunch of ones and zeros. But there's this um that's right. There's that yeah. jump of, um, I forget what it's called, um, but you believe you become engrossed in the story. You cross the narrative space or whatever, the divide, yeah. the fourth wall. So, so that's really interesting because somebody that Wes and I have recently read, Jonathan Haidt, who's a very famous psychologist and lives in New York these, these days, one, some of his pioneering work on ethics has been very interesting to me. And so just one thing, he's very famous for coming up with disgusting moral scenarios that he's are not technically jaw. that are not technically big wrong. Eyebrows. So <laughs> one of the situations, and this is a major trigger warning for anybody listening. If you don't want to hear something disgusting, just just fast forward 15 seconds. But the ethical scenario is 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 essentially your cat dies before you bury it. You make love to it. Did you do anything wrong? And so before you guys answer that, and and the the people who would administer those questions would be like, the cat is not being hurt. The cat's obviously not a human. Obviously, it's not alive, and there's no law 
against this sort of thing. But the vast majority of people would go off gut reaction and say, even though they couldn't articulate what was wrong in the situation, there was something wrong, indicating that sometimes you feel in a certain way without knowing why you feel that way. And often in that situation, what you attempt to do, because you can't explain why you feel, is you try and explain away your feeling. Though when it comes to making choices, you don't listen to that explanation away at all. You listen to your emotions, just like all of you have, just like you two have agreed with me in saying that regardless of even if these are zeros and ones and it doesn't matter, we're still making these choices where we're trying to be nice. And so what that seems to bring up to me is that part of what this game shows to us is that even when a situation seems to our rational intellect as if it does not matter, it is not our rational intellect that determines the weight of the situation and therefore is also not what will be the greatest determinant of our action in the situation. So just like you'll probably bury the cat without uh, desecrating its corpse, um, I it would, because of humans being emotive creatures with rational intellects built on top of those through their, you know, their prefrontal cortex, it makes me think that a game shows you sort of something about your, or a game in which you have to make ethical decisions or simulated ethical decisions um, tells you just, if not just as much about yourself as making decisions in the world, real world, it tells you just enough about yourself in order to understand the sorts of decisions you would make in a real situation. Um, and that in that respect, it's a very valuable and powerful tool for human nature um, or for understanding human nature in that case. I don't know if I'm way off base in saying that sort of thing, but that's the sort of thing I want to think about. Yeah, I don't know. The biggest problem I have is that height doesn't include the option of uh, protection. Uh, definite trigger warning oh. that cat has AIDS. Um, See, but that would that that would contaminate the scenario in which you could be you could be uh, you could yourself receive some sort of contamination, which you could then justify uh, as being warranted because of okay, your immoral so, behavior. Okay, so so let's use that. Let's use that well, as a um, a physical contamination, and then use it um, to get to another level, perhaps a mental contamination. What does mm -hmm. this action leave on the mind? What imprint does it leave on that individual's psyche? Well, so that's, that's precisely the thing I want to get at there with ethics as role or as playing a character as well as possible. Because even if that, even if that action in that situation is not considered immoral in isolation, it does create a pattern. Mm -hmm. That can potentially be iterated. That could potentially detract from the character you would want to be, and so I think that's a smart starting way of seeing that. Wes, what were you thinking? Um, yeah, I I had an agreement with you about the that use of um, something that's not quite logical or rational. Maybe is like you're describing like an emotive response. Um, hmm. I did want to well. Like if I'm remembering right, some of your choices do affect who you spend time with later at the gold saucer yes. um, um, date scenario thingy, right? So it's like there's like some kind of the, the, um, the honeybee in. No, no, later oh, than the that. The actual either. gold saucer. Okay. The when you have saucer. your date. 
Yeah, you get to go on a date with one of three. Wait, wait, wait. Go, Gold Saucer is the casino. Yes. Mm. You go on yeah. a date in the casino? Right mm. before oh. Ares leaves, you get a date with either her or Tifa or there's Tell, even Barrett. Right. Um. Uh, <laughs> that's funny, though. So it's like, there, it's not exactly it's not exactly the same thing as like um, a moral outcome or something like you said, super important to the story. Like she does leave either way, but it is like a little glimmer of something that's like a consequence for these little choices that you made way back at the start of the game. Um, and it's, right. like, yeah. it's interesting, right? Like you can't get to see all three scenarios. You get to see just one. Right. Uh, there is a kind of, even in a small way, like a replay factor or like a, a, a go and talk to someone else kind of thing, like find out what it was like from their perspective of playing the game. Um, that sort of broadens your experience in that respect. One, you know, just something interesting is that one of, one of the arguments the depth psychologists make against divorce is that essentially when you get into your next relationship, you'll just iterate it in the same way that you did the relationship before, unless you make a conscious change in your behavior, which is of course, a very difficult thing to do because you have to identify the problems in your behavior, which is hard for you to do because you don't like to pay attention to the bad things that you do um, um, as a person. You like to focus on the good things about yourself, and that's why you present the good things about yourself on social media and very few of the bad things. Um, and so uh, it's part of my moral reasoning that pops into my head with being nice to people like Jesse and Aries, which makes no sense, is because I know they're going to die, I want to be as nice to them as possible while they're alive. Mm. Which is funny for two reasons. A, they're not alive. And B, why don't I treat the people around me who are definitely actually going to die in the same way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> why am I not as kind to them? Why do I not give them the same benefit of the doubt that I give these characters? Perhaps it's because I don't have two choices put in front of me uh, that, are, that offer such a contrast, right? negative thing to say or positive or perhaps i just don't see that that's how every interaction can be it's not simplified for me in that respect um well yeah like it's obviously much more complicated and like lots more is going on and you don't have the time to sit there and actually choose like you just mm. sort of right but like all of that again the game kind of like schematizes it down in this way and you get to sort of see Again, I, I go to the, like the experiment or or something like that as a metaphor for what it's doing, um, and as a as a person playing the game, again, you can sort of you can skim right over that and and just experience it, and maybe that's the purer way to play the game, right? But but you can also <laughs> talk about it for hours with your friends ten years later or whatever. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking speaking of talking ten years later. That's, that's something that I really, really wanted to ask you all about. So um, two things are now we can actually identify with Cloud in a really legitimate way because now we are all past our physical primes. And so we are like Cloud in that we are all failures to become and manifest Sephiroth, right? <laughs> None of us are the top of the dominance hierarchy in any respect in life. And so, and when it comes to military action, we have all passed the time when we would be the tip of the sphere, like Navy SEALs or so- soldier. Not, not and true. So, not true. French Foreign Legion open until we're forty. And so, <laughs> in any case, guys. right. So, in any case, we now are on the other end of things. In the same way, 
that um, in the same way that cloud is. Um, and I'm forgetting my second point uh, <laughs> after that, that, that throw in. That, Got you. That um, but um, and very yeah, much no. like cloud. Yeah, losing losing concrete memories, having to recreate them as we go <laughs> along. R right. So so we find ourselves on this on the second half. I, I'm sorry, I, I did lose it. Uh, that interruption really got me. Um, so yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry. Where were we? I need some help there. Um, I got I got uh the idea you're going to talk about like what it's like now that we identify with cloud like in this different uh way like from from a standpoint of being past our prime rather than from the standpoint of being kids looking oh yes okay so there was an explicit reference i thought in the game that was meant for people who were playing the game a second time farther uh -huh. down the roll the road <laughs> so we were talking about the text box, the black and white one, not the red one, the new one that pops up mm -hmm. that oh, yeah. has a conversation with Cloud about, remember back in the day when it was, this is sort of a paraphrase, uh, when the only consequence was skinning your knee? Oh, yeah. And I was wondering whether those quotes, the, that language was not only a voice talking to Cloud, but a voice talking to we or to, to us in the future who are playing the game again so that it could recall to us the state in which we first played the game. When, just like 12-year-olds playing the game for the first time, there's not much at stake. There's, uh, we, we lived in a simpler world, just as Cloud once lived in a simpler world. And so now going back through the game, not only are we seeing it with new eyes, but we are seeing, we are getting to see the person that we once were and now the person that we've grown into from that place that this the game is itself offering sort of like a fixed point on which to see the emotions and the choices and the person that we wanted to be when we were young before our primes now compared to the people that we have become um and whether the game was explicitly entertaining that notion that it would be able to serve as sort of a a cornerstone drawing together both our past and our present in relation to our future so that that's actually uh that that reminds me of something Wes said earlier in how hmm. we sort of uh role play we interject ourselves with these characters in the game um as a sort of way of growth of differentiation hmm. uh and one of the questions I had that popped up in my mind right there was because we were using cloud as a foil to get to this idea, are we, or maybe the first time through, did we do this consciously? And to have a parallel question with the game, does cloud consciously construct himself as Zach, or is it a unconscious construction that he himself does not know? Because the, in, the sort of eruption of memories, I would say, points to this being a potentially um, unconscious activity. So what's yeah. this difference between conscious interaction and unconscious interaction in the role-playing aspect of this game? Yeah, I think it's brilliant that the way that this, this stuff kind of like bubbles up. I, I agree. I, I think it seems fair to ascribe intention on that 
to um, to the game designers to like make it possible to to see the game um, communicating with the older self 10 or 20, I guess 20 years mm-hmm. later, right? Actually playing the game versus mm-hmm. the kid playing the game for the first time. I think that's fair and like seems supported. And it seems like it, this is like thematically enters into the, um, the, the heart of the story, right? Like about who Cloud is, his identity, his um, self-construction as a person. Uh, it's like it mirrors you playing the game. So I think it's very, yes. uh, very fair to, um, to kind of like pose that question and, and see how the game um, works it out. And then plays if, it you, out. if you're willing to agree and grant me that, Wes, I'm going to go to an even bigger question, <laughs> which is which is this: Do you think the purpose of the game, and therefore any story, is to act as a corrective to one's path that one finds oneself on in life? As a child, you play the game. I want to be the hero. As an adult, when you play the game, you get to see how you have become wayward. But since we're still young adults we can still get back on the path. Just as Dante, who did this at a very similar age to us at 30, uh, 34, 35, um, uh, did in his Divine Comedy. And so is part of this game mirroring the function of narrative to tell us where we are along our own journeys in life and where whether we, are, we have fallen short and where we have fallen short and how far we have to go and what have we missed in sacrifice to what we wish to become? Um, do you think that that question is too large to ask or, or inappropriate to ask? No, I mean, what the game is for seems like, yeah, a, a shared experience with like ramifying um, possibilities, which closer or more distantly, come to consciousness for the player right like it's it's probably the the meaning like you asked in the first one i think about like the meaning of the the name final fantasy right like right in what respect is it final Uh, (laughs) it's it's not really except that you live once right like you do as far as we understand uh you 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 are the person you are just one time so final but the fantasy of it right is that you get to you get to sort of pause and like look at it from outside and talk about it and replay it and and kind of you, you get this uh, as you describe like a, a guide in a sense um, an ideal to shoot for or to know how far you fell short of or something like that. So I think yeah th- that all seems to be there um, again with the caveat you can ignore it if you want. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. It makes me wonder whether story itself is supposed to be the guide for someone that when Dante includes Virgil as the guide to him through his own story, whether he is himself saying story is that which guides story. Mm. Um, And that it is in that. So we've talked about narrative being sort of a four dimensional representation of reality. And so then it would, it would make sense that wedging yourself as a character within a narrative would be the way that you orient yourself within psychological and social reality as a human, because we don't just live in physical reality, right? We have to know social mores. If you dress too crazy, people are going to treat you weird. You're going to have real effects. Um, if you dress like cloud out in public, people are going to treat you in a, in a real, in a very different way from if you dress 
like how I do, as opposed to how Vince does. We get treated very differently. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I get tips on the street, okay? <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> and so, um, and all the all the listeners should know that we're 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 like a group of best friends here. So if we're ever talking smack on each other, it's mostly in good faith. And uh, <laughs> and so, so I I just. I wonder if what I'm looking for is specific to Final Fantasy VII or whether it's what we are looking for when we play games, especially a second time or read a story a second time, is to orient ourselves in relation to our own path in life. And how we judge a narrative to be good or bad is to what degree it enables us to do that. And so Final Fantasy VII and drawing us back to it would would function as sort of one of those ultimate or epic or incredible narratives because it is capable of having that orienting effect on anybody who has ever played it. And so that sort of generalized, and maybe not everybody, but a large number of people as shown by how many copies it has sold and how much time has been devoted to talking about it on Reddit. Um, and, <laughs> and so that well, we come to these stories. Yeah, go. So, go so yeah. one thing, uh, the, the idea of narrative as or story as a reflection through which we can see ourselves if we read it or play it as such, um, <clears throat> as a general statement, I think is great. It's, it's something that we, we can dig into, but what about the specific, to yes. relay the groundwork, the specifics of this text which i think it's very safe to call this game our text what yes, does this game how does it seek to reflect us back to ourselves and may, let, let's just do a round table perhaps um mm. and say how we sort of see ourselves back through this game that might be interesting for ourselves that's and that's, for that's our very listeners good. perhaps okay that's excellent that as well well, do you want to get us started since you, I mean, that's an excellent idea, Vance. And that's something perhaps we should do every time that we have these conversations. It's funny how these sort of interesting like segments of a segment epiphenomenally sort of appear. It's like all of a sudden, good idea. There it is. It reveals itself. So how about you start and give us an example of how it affects you and then we can jump in on that. Yeah, so I, I'll say we jump into this game uh, into a world that seems to be uh, fractured. Not only is the world fractured, the sectors in which people live are fractured, and we even have our main character, Cloud, whose own memory and psyche is fractured. And yes. throughout the game, there seems to be a sense that you are restoring this fractured self in this world so what what i think possibly that the player the reader of this text can get is that there are items that you must reflect back on that might get brought up um through everyday activities that you might try to push away but you need to reintegrate you yourself are a fractured individual that yes. needs to find a way to restore itself, not only in the world by yourself, but Cloud's part of a team. Cloud mm -hmm. will begin, as well as everyone else, will begin to restore this fractured self 
with other yeah. people. Well, just as a very personal example from myself of me doing that during this game and even this conversation is that when I first played through the game, I totally identified with Cloud's arrogance. I was like, man, yeah, I'm the former soldier guy. You guys can't say anything to me, even though I knew nothing about what soldier was or about Cloud himself. It, I, and I think that's an excellent representation of how we think we know ourselves when we know <laughs> ourselves least. Um, specifically me, I just arrogantly was like, I have this big sword. I'm obviously stronger than you all. And I was blind to the fact that I was not stronger than the other characters. The fact that I was essentially just as strong as they were, I was blinded to by the pride that Cloud himself had. It took Wes noting that Cloud was not actually as strong as he acts for me to notice that not only about Cloud, but potentially even about myself. Thanks for doing that, that, Wes. When you're, when you're overcome with, say, pride of identification, like, say, our young people and being identified with being American, though they've contributed, you know, depending on the young person, much less than they will contribute in the future, right? Mm. And, so, and so part of, part of sort of the, the process of growing up and that I, I needed to have happen and still need to have happen is realizing what, what, is, what is me... And what am I taking credit for that is not me, that is part of the culture, hmm. right? And so what have I actually accomplished myself? And what has just been accomplished by those around me and those from history that I benefit from? So, so and I would say now being at this place in my life, it's interesting because I do feel on the one hand, like I do still identify with many of the excellent accomplishments for which I have no, which I've had no part in achieving but that I'm, I'm starting to more see myself through the deeds that I have done in the world, that I'm, I'm, I'm starting to reintegrate what is me and parse that out from what is not me in a way that we'll see Cloud explicitly do when he has a, psych, you know, when he has a psychotic break. Yeah. And so, you know, and maybe I can talk about what a psychotic break is at some point too. I'm, <laughs> And maybe you can too, Vince. Ooh, All right. Who loves that? <laughs> <laughs> this guy. So, and well, so I think that'll be a powerful thing to talk about when oh, we dude, talk about Adderall the effects. Is our that, Mako. Well, yeah, so I was just about to say when we talk about what Mako and Genova cells in particular are, the fact that sort of a simulating and empowering thing you can take can corrupt your willpower and lead you towards a goal that is not your own, but rather its. Or make and thus, you awesome. Are, or and thus parasitize <laughs> you um, is very interesting. But just so Wes, let's uh, we're getting a little loopy, so maybe we can wrap up with your experience here. Yeah. Okay. So as you guys were talking, I was thinking back over the conversation. I think we touched on some some uh, some good like landmarks for me, like my understanding of the game and how it's changed. Um, we talked about at the start today the historical. Um, sort of aspect of the game, how it reflects a, a particular um, experience of of the Japanese nation and its um, relationship to the West after World War II, um, and I guess before that too. I didn't know that stuff about the um, uh, the the history, like the eighteen sixties to nineteen twelve or whatever. Neither did I. More more about that is anyway. Pew, so pew. there's the historical. Yeah, good. And um, I, I think as a kid. I had this sense that there was something interesting about Final Fantasy 
and um, the series like it deals with uh, elemental powers, whether like crystals in earlier games of, of the elements or in this game, the materia um, that we start to it's like the crystallization of the of the Mako energy. So I was like very interested in that idea that um, you by say, like what it means to save the world is sort of like understanding the the kind of energy which gives life and order. Um, that's like what the story is kind of about and I, I saw that a lot in Earthbound too in a, in a I think a more interesting way Earthbound like plays with that idea of your connection to the um, to the energy of the earth or something like that it sounds like very new agey but like as a kid when those ideas are new to you they're pretty pretty interesting so I, well, I like games because um, my, my, my friends would uh, play them like neighbors and friends that I had and so people that I looked up to enjoyed these kinds of games and that's how I got into them. Um, the most interesting thing I think that has changed is like, as a kid, um, the the relationship with Tifa and Eris and Barrett um, was more immediate. Like I definitely identified more with Cloud and was like more invested in like how I reacted to these other characters. Like the most interesting thing to me was like the way that Cloud and Tifa um, like stood on that water tower in their hometown and like mm -hmm. swung over the edge and that that's like a great image to me of like what it's like to be a child and sort of like everything is bigger than it should be with respect to you like you haven't grown mm. into it quite um and then you have to grow like into the world flashback. that's right yeah how that flashback with tifa and her her father like there's something very again like archetypal fairy tale about that um and then with eris and her flower garden in the slums like all those things jumping over the rooftops with her all those things had a pretty like poetic romantic uh effect on me as a kid and it was like kind of my entree into um art and literature and stuff was like playing these kind of games so it was like very formative now looking back i can be a lot i can sort of take a little bit more distance it takes an effort in mm -hmm. a way um, but at the same time it's like the natural thing now is to just to make that effort and to like see the 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 distance between real uh experience and the game and think about again how to um how to play these games with other people in the most um like in enlightening or illuminating fashion so that it's like how how do you get people interested in learning is like my main question as uh i, I might not be like the, the top of the teaching hierarchy or whatever but like i think that's the question that a teacher should ask so like that's kind of what games seem to be. It's like a way to get people interested in, in learning and thinking about their experience. And so like, and, yeah. how do games do it well? How could games do it better? How, how do we teach games? These are the kinds of things I think about now. You know, what's so interesting about that, just in relation to what we said with Jonathan Haidt earlier, is that what seems to be paramount is the fun experience. And when you have the fun or the meaningful experience playing, that's what gives you the interest necessary to uh, use your attention to focus on the elements that create that experience. It's yeah. almost as if you need the product, boom, to hit you like meteor. And then that, that effect that it has on you is what draws your attention back to it to understand why it had that yeah. effect on you. So perhaps it's not the world that got hit by meteor, but, but us. Yeah. Um, and it's, this game had a real impact in us. And just something interesting you said uh, about the difference between Earthbound and Final Fantasy VII is, what I think that this game does perhaps better than any game I've ever played is reflect that the, the chaos in the world and even that comes from outside the world 
is reflected in the psyche of those in the world. And so where exactly that chaos comes from is a very interesting question. Is it, is it, you know, is the chaos in the mind of one person reflected in all the events in this world or is it vice versa? Or is it like the Jungians say that there's sort of an unus mundus, a one world in which uh, psyche and matter interact with each other or, or that one is a reflection of the other even better to take Dante's perspective as well as Plato's of course. Um, and so with his ideas of the forms. Um, and so I don't know. So I, I'm less puzzled and so I guess we're going to have to continue to work through some puzzles here and to understand ourselves better. I mean, perhaps it is the case that the labyrinth, the labyrinth does exists in order, you know, what is it that we discover at the, the center of the labyrinth but ourselves? And, hmm. Well, guys, how about we play through the slums? This time, well, because no one chooses to stay in the slums and you got to work your way out of them. And so let's let's work our way from the bottom to the top. How, how about it? Why don't we, okay. we get through the slums, meet this Don, go through the sewers again, because things always get worse before they get better, right? And then uh -huh. maybe we can see uh, the sort of plate, we can see a plate crash that's not from a Greek wedding and uh, <laughs> get out of our, our would-be hometown, not technically hometown, but our starting point in this game. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, get out of that part. That's that's tedious. So yeah, let's at least get up to the uh, the top of the plate. If we that's can. true. I do seem to recall that being a fairly tedious part. So well, let's go through some tedium together. <laughs> and that we can really reflect on Vince's uh, mode of operation. Then, how was it watching that guy go through some tedious activities? Vince would say, "I just skipped through." <laughs> <laughs> All, All right, right, that's well, it. I I guess so. That'll do. Heck yeah. All right, All right my dudes. Take care. <laughs> See ya. Next time.